Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is March 31st, 2016. This is episode 1756 of the Survival Podcast. It's Thursday. That means it's Listener Calls Day. That means this show is the show you guys created. You guys make calls to the Think Line. That number, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Leave your question or your comment for me. Best way to do that, the format to follow. Just make your statement or ask your question immediately, then give me your details. Trust me, it'll go better that way, and you'll be more likely to get through the screening process and on to the show. This is the best way to get on the show, by the way. If you've ever thought, I'll just send Jack an email. I get like 200 emails a day. I get like two to three calls a day. So if you look at it, I usually put six, seven calls on a show. Uh, you get six or seven out of 21 on the, on the high side because I don't get as many on the weekends as the weekdays. So sometimes it's like 14, half the calls get on the air. So if you make calls and you follow the formula, you will probably get on the air sooner or later. Before we get into uh, your calls, let's tell you what they're going to be about today on the new show format. I think you guys are digging the new show format. We get into content a lot quicker. Number one, I'm going to give you an ass clown circus immunization today. Don't worry. It doesn't have any thermosol or mercury in it. It will, it will inoculate you against the bullshit of the 2016 election. It will be fun. It will take 15 seconds. You'll love it, but you'll have to wait to see what it is. I'll also talk about making hard cider when you're using raw pressed cider juice. And it's all cloudy. You're going, is it supposed to get clear? I'm going to talk about dealing with bad experiences with the police from the best of my ability since I really haven't had many. Um, I'm going to talk about how to get started with a business, like your own small business, when you're like, I don't know anything about business, uh, economics, money, what to do. I just want a business. And do what I can with that. Um, silver investing, specifically for kids, how that works and why I recommend it. We're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about my 10% scumbag theory. And does that apply to libertarians? Like if most people, you get a big group of people and about 10% are dirtbags. Um, if you had a big group of libertarians, would it be about the same number? And what does that mean about the non-aggression principle and things like that? And then the, the next, I swear to God, that call came in the very next call in order you'll hear, uh, talks about a solution to internet trolls, but it starts out discussing the 10% scumbag number and using internet trolls and some metrics to prove that number is at least that high or higher than the general population. So we'll talk about scumbag theory and internet trolls and is there a technology solution to kill trolls. We'll also talk about why I recommend older diesel vehicles like 0506 and back versus modern diesel vehicles made in the last five, six years. And that's a pretty easy one. So we have all of that and more coming for you today. Before we get into it, let's go ahead, get some historical context into our day, and uh, take a look at the history segment for the year that was the episode. The year, 1756, because the episode is 1756. Alex Shrugged has two for us today. The Longitude product is, Project is delayed again, and Mozart is born. I'm not going to read that one, but Mozart was born in 1756. Few happenings. German chocolate is made in Germany. It's their first chocolate factory. Aaron Burr's born. He's going to eventually shoot Alexander Hamilton dead in a duel. And 120 British soldiers die in a black hole of Calcutta, India. That's a dungeon in Fort William. If you've ever wondered how Great Britain came to rule over India, it's already begun in this year. The Seven Years' War has come to India. Remember, that is a world war that no one talks about as being what it really was, a world war. So let's read the Longitude Project is delayed again. 
The Seven Years' War has disrupted the testing of the third version of the Marine chronometer designated H3. It's small enough to fit in a captain's cabin. Amazing. But British Longitude Board is worried that H3 might be captured or destroyed. The inventor John Harrison has taken 19 years to build H3. John is in his 60s. How many more clocks can he make? Currently, navigators find their position using a process called dead reckoning, or deduced reckoning. If you ever wonder where dead reckoning came from, there you go. Uh, by plotting from a known position, then estimating based on assumed speed and time, the procedure often results in sailing past the destination without realizing it, or unexpectedly running into a destination really, really hard. An early sextant uses astronomical objects to find a position at sea. But they haven't figured it out yet. In other words, it stinks. Despite the delays, Harrison has begun work on an even greater invention, the H4, the first marine pocket watch. My take by Alex Shrug. In a world of GPS apps for your smartphone, it is easy to know where you are at all times, but GPS can be spoofed. The University of Texas Engineers showed how it can be done. Our new tools are wonders, but we still need to know how to perform the task the old-fashioned way. Knowing how to use our tools gives us a fallback position. It's like the problem with cash registers that lose power and suddenly the guy behind the counter no longer knows how to make change. Don't be that guy. The early marine chronometers were very expensive, which made the cheaper sextant quite popular. Once they mass-produced Harrison's watch, the price dropped considerably, but sextants have, sextants have remained useful. A quick search on Amazon shows several available for under 60 bucks. Yeah, I've always said you should know how to use a map and a compass. And a GPS, if you're going to go off the trail, so to speak. Uh, or even on the trail, because you might end up off the trail by accident. And I have been in places where GPSs simply didn't work. They also require batteries, and a map and a compass doesn't. So there is that. But I think my bigger takeaway from this is, this gives you some context of all that history stuff you learn about. Like, oh, they went here, and they sailed over that way, and then they went down here, and they did... Okay, <laughs> a lot of that stuff happened 100 years before this. I, I want you to put yourself in a position. You're in a boat. Pretty big boat, but not big by today's standards at all. Some sails and a bunch of guys that might be pissed off at you and kill you if you do the wrong thing. You're the captain. And you look out over the great deep blue of the Pacific or the Atlantic, and you can't see shit for nothing. And you got to get from point A to point B, and you're not really sure if there is a point B, where it's at, or what's going to be there when you get there. These guys were made of some pretty strong stuff to be willing to take these risks. I think maybe we need to figure out what that is, bottle it up, and feed it to some of our millennial generation and get their asses in gear. Because we have it easy today. That's what people don't realize. And I hear all this talk about privileged class and what have you. This is the most privileged generation that's ever lived, if you want to use the word that way. Which means we have more opportunity than any generation that's ever existed. I'm talking to all of us that are alive and walking around. If you're still fogging a mirror, you're part of this, what I would call a macro generation. Not the micro generation, Gen X, Gen Y, tweeners, boomers, millennials, internet natives, which are like the next thing, right? I'm talking about the generation that's living now, the living generation. There's never been a time in history with more access to opportunity, with more access to information, with more comfort, with more leisure with more wealth available if you're willing to work for it. I'm not saying it's perfect. It's far from perfect. I want it to be better. But realize what you have and realize where we've come from. That's one of the reasons we study history, not just not to repeat the mistakes of the past. With that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day and get into your calls. Fortress Defense Consultants offers tactical training, including rifle, pistol, tactical shotguns, specialized classes for women, 
force-on-force -force engagement training, and you can even do customized training with them. They will also travel to your location for larger groups. Find out more at FortressDefense.com. Hey guys, as many of you know, I used to be a business and marketing consultant in my former life, and the advice I gave most business owners every day was, do what you say and say what you do. Well, ready-made resources figured that out on their own. All the resources from food storage to gardening to guns to alternative energy, ready-made and ready to go for your prepping needs. Check out ReadyMadeResources.com to learn more today. All right, with that wrapped up, before we get your first call, I actually promised to do something for you today. I promised to give you an immunization. Don't worry, you don't have to roll up your sleeve. I'm not going to wipe it down with, uh, with, with alcohol or anything like that. There's no additives or... Uh, fetal tissue or any of the things that the anti-vax crowd worries about in this immunization. It, it actually is a mental immunization. It's far more powerful than a chemical immunization, by the way. It's going to work. And I'm going to warn you that some of you may not want this immunization. So unlike the state, I don't want to force it upon you. I'm going to tell you what it's for, and then you can skip. When I say now, if you skip 20 seconds ahead, it won't happen. But I think you should take it. And I dare you, if you don't want to take it, I dare you to take it, and I bet you it will work. It will be with you forever, and you will be immune to the ass-clown circus of modern American politics. Now, I call it the ass-clown circus, and that is because... The people running for office make promises to basically steal from other people, but somehow everybody's going to be better off that they change the way that they're stealing from people. All of these people are corrupt. All of these people don't care about you. And all these people do is drum up hatred amongst us who should be united. And they do this like a bunch of scary-ass clowns. And you can go scary space, ass space clowns, or Scary space ass clowns. Either way, Paul Wheaton would do it with the three spaces. I would do it with the one. Scary ass clowns. It's like a great big circus of these freaks telling you that they are better at figuring out how you should live your life than you are. And you know what got me to do this? Recently, I put a little meme on Facebook. I thought, this one will be a home run for people. Even people that have a candidate they want will still see the wisdom of this. So it said, who here is most fit to lead you in your life. And the pictures were the candidates that you have to pick from right now. Cruz, Clinton, Sanders, Trump. And then E, choice E, was a stick figure looking at a mirror seeing himself. So is it one of these four people or are you best qualified? And there were people that made arguments for one of the candidates. This is a disease. I call it sheepitis that our country has been led to believe that there are people outside of ourselves that don't even know us that are better suited to tell us how to live our lives than we are. And I need to give you a treatment, and I'm asking you to let me. All I want to do, I'm going to play something for you. It's going to run about 15 seconds. I want you to listen to it. Just listen to it. And then every time from now on that you start seeing news about these ass clowns, Just remember what you've heard, and it will completely cover up all the damage of that information being shoved into your head. And you'll be able to think for yourself. Like I said, I'm going to say the word now. When I do, if you don't want this immunization, forward ahead at least 20 seconds. Because once you receive it, there'll be no going back. Red, poop, red pill or blue pill, Neo, 
It's up to you. And here we go now. Now, <laughs> hopefully to give you a laugh, but seriously, some of you might need a booster shot. I don't know if it'll take for everybody the first time around. So what I'll do, there'll be a link today for an MP3 of the full version of the circus song. And what I want you to try is put it on your phone or your MP3 player or whatever, and every time political commentary BS ass clown circus comes on, hit play. See how long it takes you to become completely immune to it. You're welcome. I hope if you took the immunization you wanted it, because I did, unlike your doctor, give you a disclaimer. And that's just a little bit of Thursday humor, but I want to hear from how many of you that say, you know what, it worked and I can't get it out of my head now. Every time I hear one of these idiots talk and I just hear, that's going to happen. It's going to happen to thousands of you. See, humor is an effective weapon when properly applied. All right, so let's go ahead and take that first call now. This is actually a pretty easy one. Hey, Jack, it's Jesse in San Diego. Quick cider question. Will cider made from unfiltered apple juice ever clear? I've got several gallons going right now, and the unfiltered, the stuff I made from unfiltered juice uh, is just not clearing. So should I wait, or does it matter? Or should I just be more patient? Thanks, man. We'll talk to you later. So the very, very, very short answer is yes, it will clear. It will clear just as clear as any other cider. And yes, you just need to be more patient, especially in the situation you're in now. You've done it. It's happened. It's sitting in your secondary fermenter and you're waiting on it. And it's taking longer to clear. So that's the short answer, or the short, short answer. The short answer is, in the future, if you use a little bit of peptic enzyme as an additive in your primary fermenter, you will get a more rapid clearing of any and all ciders, uh, or anything using any fruit. And you don't have to do it. I make fruit meads all the time with small amounts of fruit and don't use peptic enzyme. But if you use it, it will help break down the pectin in the fruit, which is what's creating the cloud, and it will simply fall out of the, of the must faster for you. So there's that. I also want to tell you there are some other findings you can use, uh, that help to clear ciders, especially when you're using like a raw juice. And I have a, a great, uh, thread on the homebrew forums that uh, you want to check out. And it's linked in the uh, in the resources section for today's show of 1756. So just go to the site. If it's in the future and you're listening to this and you want to find it, just type 1756 in the box. You'll find the episode like that. Click on it. You'll see in the resources, you'll see a link. And there's a guy named Yoper on the forum over there. And uh, this guy switched on. He knows his stuff. And he gives some specific advice in that thread. All the advice is good. But whenever you hear Yoper uh, speak textually on homebrew forums, pay attention. The guy knows what he's doing. And uh, when you see the little icon he uses for his, uh, what do you call it? It's not emoji. It's uh, your, uh, what do you call it thing when you, uh, everybody's screaming it right now. The word's avatar. Okay, yeah. So like his avatar, you might be like, whoa, I don't know about this guy. But I'm telling you, man, Yoper's he knows what he's doing. I just wanted to get people to go look at that thread. So that's why I told you. But you'll see what I'm talking about when you see it. Anyway, uh I don't know, he might be somehow involved with yesterday's guest. I'm just saying. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Dennis in the Puget Sound area of Washington. I have a question for all those new uh, 
business owners, people wanting to start a business, uh, where, where's the best place to start? I mean, if you don't have great financial skills or have problems uh, with accounting or, or turning your business into an actual business and not just a hobby, uh, where, does, where does someone start with that? Uh, thank you very much for the show. Uh, listen all the time, and uh, have a great day. Thanks. Okay, well, I don't want to sound like I'm being a dick here, and I'm really not, but the the short answer to this one is you have to figure out what you don't know and then learn it. Now, I'm not going to leave it there, so don't don't worry, but it's like coming to somebody and saying, well, if I don't know anything about martial arts and I want to become a good martial artist, how do I start? Well, you you examine different martial arts, you find a good instructor, and you start down a path of study, and if an art doesn't work for you, uh, you go find another instructor or another art, and you go there, and if it happens a few times in a row, you start to evaluate that and go, maybe it's me, maybe I'm not being a good student, and eventually you start to learn and you find what works for you, Okay. Everything in life works the same way. How do I start a garden if I've never grown a garden before? Well, there's millions of resources available. Start out with, what do I like to eat? I mean, that's I mean, people say, well, I, don't, I want to start a garden. Uh, what do I do? Okay, well, we're going to have to worry about soil and what we're producing. So soil, we'll just put that aside for a second because we need to figure out how much space we need. So what do you eat? If you don't like cucumbers, don't plant them. So you figure out all the stuff you like to eat that you can grow. And then you say, well, how much of it do I want to grow? And then that you figure out how much space you have. And then you go out and you figure out, like, does my soil work the way it is with a little bit of amendments and some mulch? Or do I need to bring a raised bed in or whatever? And you just start, you plot along. And your first garden sucks. But it's a garden. And you get something out of it. And you figure out what doesn't work. And then you adjust. And then your next year, you do a lot better. And usually by your third year as a gardener, you're pretty damn good at it. That's how businesses work. The problem is that, People And the reason I have this analogy, people go into gardening expecting that. It's not going to work well. In fact, I'm probably going to lose money on my first garden. And there's a lot of other things that people go into that way. I'm going to probably not make a living on this you know, or have it work really, really well, and I'm going to have to learn. So then people go into business, and they want it to be different. They want to go into business. They want to start doing a few things, and they want to have a product and start selling it and be profitable. And most businesses don't work out that way, especially right away. Especially when you're coming at it from, I don't even know what I want to do yet. So here's some steps I would give you. Number one, improve your financial IQ. So I actually have a, a, a tip that will be on Monday show, but there's a financial term of the day. I think it's available from Forbes or somebody like that, so you can tune in Monday for that, or you can just, just Google financial term of the day and just start learning about money. Right. I mean, that's something every one of you should be doing, business owner or not, or want to be business owner or not. I would also recommend a book. I'm going to give a couple caveats in it. Okay. It is not a true story. Again, it is not a true story. It is a narrative. And I do believe that the author did have some of these experiences as a kid, but they was, it was, call it a fiction book that teaches you lessons in life with some stuff derived from actual childhood and young adult experiences. And it's called Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. I think it's probably the best book that I know of that you can read without wanting to kill yourself that will get the business mindset into your head. I'm not going to recommend that you go buying all the rest of the guy's books or getting involved with all his other crap or things like that. And I'll tell you right in the middle of the book, he drops this one little line that says, I often recommend that people join a network marketing course because they have great sales training. 
That was done to sell a shitload of books through Quickstar slash Amway, and it worked. And it worked with many others. So it was a little marketing play in there. And uh, I'm not going to recommend that you do that. I don't think that's the way to make uh, and build a business today in a valid way that you actually control. You're not going into business to have somebody else tell you what you can and can't do. You're going into business to set your own rules. You let your customers tell you what you can and can't do, not anybody else. So that would be a good place to start. Also, I recommend you go to my website called jackspearco.com where I did a business podcast. I did about a hundred-ish episodes of that, and uh, they were called Five Minutes with Jack, and it rapidly expanded like 15 Minutes with Jack. And I'll tell you what, if, if you listen to all of that and just start doing the stuff that's there, you'll figure it out. I'm not saying it's all going to work. I'm saying you'll figure out what works for you because that's what a big part of this is, is figuring out what works for you. The next thing you need to start doing is you need to evaluate what, are you, what, what value can you bring to other people, whether it's a skill like you know woodworking or something like that, or if it's something that you know or something that you can do, or what can you learn that you can then use to create value and add it to other people. And it doesn't always mean that you need to have a hard skill or a hard knowledge. If you can find a source of something and figure out how to market it well and then add a profit to it, you can actually build businesses in this day and age where you never touch product, even though you're in a product-based business. Uh, a lot of people are doing this with sites like Alibaba over in China and things like that, and they set up a dropshipper in the United States that stocks according to demand. And you know, So there's all different types of ways to make a living today. I've done shows on different business ideas, so I don't want to throw too many of those out today because people think the idea is the business. But, I mean, you really could go out with a good leaf blower, a lawnmower, a trailer, and some equipment and start cutting lawns and be in business this week if you really wanted to. Well, not in the whole country because grass isn't growing everywhere yet, but you get the idea. Cleaning gutters, installing gutters, I mean, I'm not saying those are good businesses to go into, but if you like that kind of work, then then they're not bad businesses to go into. Um, somebody wrote in that, you know, I talked about doing pressure washing as a way to start building a customer base and just washing people's driveways. A guy wrote in that said that, you know, he met a guy at his work that did just that and he expanded to coming in to places where, you know, there were, you could talk to the boss pretty easily and said, Hey, I do car washes for five bucks. Would you let your employees know that they can have their car washed right in the driveway, you know, out, outside while, while they work? And, of course, the boss is like, hey, that makes their life better, makes my life better. And now he's got contracts cleaning all the building walls and stuff from the same place, and he's probably doing that in other places. There's literally infinite opportunity. The, the problem most people that want to start a business have isn't figuring out what to do. It's clearing their mind of all the shit that they could be doing when they actually realize how much opportunity there is. Actually, the number one question I get from entrepreneurs is, I have five ideas And they all could just kill it. And I don't know how to figure out which one to do. And I'm like, if you actually believe they all could just kill it, and you actually are just as excited about each and every one of them, and if you're actually just as passionate about each and every one of them, put them all up on a wall, back up 50 paces, and hurl a dart at the wall with a blindfold on. And whatever one you're closest to with the dart, do that. And then the truth comes out. Well, I mean, I really think this one. See, when you when you force it, you're like I really think this one has more opportunity. And okay, so you figure that shit out, and you pick one, and you start figuring out how you're going to roll it out. Um, but it's it's a it's it's a multiple concept thing. And understand the good news. There's plenty of people that are lousy with money that have successful businesses. There's plenty of people that are lousy with marketing that have successful businesses. 
um, because they, they focus so much on just the operations of the business and making sure they deliver a product, and they, they, they know enough about money to know I have to be profitable. And a lot of the stuff in a business when it's just you is very forgiving because there's nobody's payroll eating a hole in your pocket. All you lose is time, and that time is part of your education. I think the biggest thing that people need to understand about business is, number one, yes, follow your passion. Follow your passion. There's no reason not to. You can make a website about funnels and make it profitable today if you really tried. So if funnels are your profit, uh, your, your passion, I don't know that anybody, that's why I pick something ridiculous like that. You know, and I'm talking about funnels, yes, you pour liquid through, like to pour oil into an engine, right? Um, if, if that's your passion, then go for it. I bet you could do it. Uh, probably a hard road, but if that's really what you're passionate about, you'd be the only one. That's, that's the beauty of it. Um, so follow your passion. But two, develop business acumen, financial knowledge, and common sense. You know, I mean, you can make your life a lot harder than it has to be by trying to do something. Nobody's doing it, man. That means nobody's buying it either. Right? It's very rare that you actually find something nobody's doing. You're the first one and people really want it. If you do, it's a home run. But it's not technic it's not typically very likely. But develop a mental process. Start evaluating and like one of the best things you can do, we teach people to do permaculture design. We say, well, just look at the designs other people have done, find everything right about it, find everything wrong about it. You're not you're not emotionally attached to it when it's not yours. So start just looking at websites and going What's good about this site? What do I like about it? What do I hate about it? Every every time you make an online purchase, what could have made that purchase easier? What would have made you spend more money? Every time you look at something, don't buy it. What would have made you buy it? Did you contact the company? No. What would have made you contact the company and ask a question before you decided not to buy it? You know, did you just make a decision on price? Probably not the best place to learn from because you're not going to compete just on price if you're going to be a small person. So. What you know when you make a decision based on quality or the site or the individual or the product that's a specific product or a specific branded product, then you have to ask yourself well, what made you do that and start reverse engineering the process. It's kind of like investing when you're in in high school and they give you ten thousand dollars of fake money and you buy stocks that you don't really have any consequence for and you either win or you lose. Uh, you can do that. You can learn a lot about trading stocks with no risk. So you can learn a lot about business by evaluating other people's businesses. But get over to jackspearco.com. Read Rich Dad, Poor Dad with the, you know, the caveats I gave you and just really start asking yourself, what am I good at? What could I become good at? What do I want to do? When am I happy? When am I miserable? What do I love about my job? What do I hate about my job? What do I love about dealing with people? What do I hate about dealing with people? How do I feel about being responsible for other people in a supervisory role? Do I want employees? You start answering these questions, you start to form a template for yourself, and you start to figure out how do I build something that fits my life, my way, for the goals that I have. That's the best advice I can give you in 10 minutes flat. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. I was just wondering what you think we can do about the corruption in the police department. I was recently pulled over by a police officer, and he was very aggressive and very jumpy. After I told him I was carrying, I have to in my state. And I legitimately was in fear for my life that he was going to slip out and shoot me. And after the incident, I was left thinking, I shouldn't feel this way. No way. Just like to hear your thoughts on that. Thanks, and keep up all the good work. Um, I'm glad I listened to this whole call because I am convinced now that it's a legitimate call. And when I first heard the guy's voice, I was like, that sounds like the deep breath guy that calls you on the phone and says, what are you wearing, right? Um, but 
I, I think maybe this person's just a little bit shook up and is doing this to be very, uh, no way nobody knows who he is, right? That type of thing. Um, or maybe some people just have that really slow, deep voice like that. I, I don't know. But let's pick out a word in here that I, I think is a problem in, in this scenario, unless you're going to call back or email me and tell me you did something you didn't say you did here. The word is corruption. The word was corruption. So I'm not saying there's not corruption in the police departments, because there certainly is. But what you just described doesn't show me corruption. It shows me a off-kilter officer who should not be doing his job if he's going to be that freaked out every time he approaches a vehicle, especially in a state where it's legal to carry, because the occupant of the vehicle did identify themselves as someone who's carrying. And... The, the reality for police officers is it's not typical that somebody that means to shoot you is going to tell you that they have a gun. I mean, I would like to hear from any officer that ever went up to a vehicle and said, Sir, I'd like to know if you're carrying a gun. Or during a routine traffic stop, the person said, Hey, I'm a concealed carry permit holder. Here's my permit. Or anything like that, where they've, they've notified you as a courtesy that they're carrying, and then you ended up with them attempting to use their weapon against you. I'm going to bet that the, the number I'm going to get of responses to that's big solid goose egg zero. Generally, a person that has a gun that you can't see that might decide they want to shoot you doesn't tell you about it, especially when you're a law enforcement officer standing outside of their car. Because they know as soon as you are told about it, you're going to be on the alert for it. Okay? So I know there could be some reverse psychology or whatever, and I know I don't do your job, cops. But in the end, freaking out and acting all tweaked out because somebody acknowledges, yes, I'm carrying a gun legally in our state, is off kilter. You also have to realize that, and we'll talk about the 10% scumbag theory, that while 10% of police officers and 10% of priests and 10% of school teachers and 10% of just about everybody group in society that's large enough to have a statistical average is probably a dirtbag, um, 90% probably are not. 90% probably are not, but they are all something else. They're all human. And you have no idea when you're dealing with a police officer what they were doing half an hour ago. And I'm not an apologist for the police like some of you morons say, but I do think if you want to stay alive and you want to avoid conflict when you can, you should use a little bit of reality in your judgment of what you do. I'm very happy that people are videoing the police, showing what they're doing wrong, uh, you know, uncovering corruption, uncovering lies, and showing oath-breaking piece of shit cops for what they are, oath-breaking pieces of shit. And if you're a if you're a, you know, a good cop in quotes, then you should be very happy about that too. You should be begging more people to do it. And if you're not, you're probably not the good cop you think you are. No, you're probably not, right? Well, we don't really, it makes it harder. Tough shit, it makes it harder, okay? So very clear, I'm not apologizing to the police officers, but what is the first thing that this person should have done once the experience was over? Contacted the police department that this guy works for and report the incident. Now, I'm not saying that they're going to go out and fire the guy or, or whatever, but it will create a report. He will know that it happened, and if it becomes a pattern, most departments begin to look at it a bit deeper. Okay, And I wonder how many incidents like this go unreported because of the attitude, well, they won't do anything anyway. Well, maybe if there were a hell of a lot more reports, they just might. 
and then be a little bit of little bit of a pain in the ass about it. Well, I made this report a week ago. I'd like to know what's happened. Uh, no one's contacted me from Internal Affairs or anything like that. I'd like to give an on the record statement. Can I come down there and do it? This is important to me. I am. Con this is the words to use. I am concerned for the safety of other citizens because the way that this offer, officer uh, behaved in front of me seemed dangerous. And if anything happens, I want you to know that if you don't take my report, I'm going to find whoever was impacted and I'll make sure their lawyer does. So if you want to fight corruption, you actually have to uncover corruption. Okay, so you actually have to give a system that's in place to put checks on things like this an opportunity to do something. And I'm going to tell you, flip a freaking coin. That's, that's the odds, right? So I got a coin right here, bing, up in the air, flips, landed heads. They're going to do something. And let's flip it again and see if the statistical average works out. It tails. They're not going to do shit. But then you make sure they know that you are paying attention to what goes on in that jurisdiction. You have that officer's name. You're going to be monitoring the local news and Google news for that officer's name. And if any other incident like this comes up, you'll be reaching out to the person that reported it and or their family to let them know that you had a similar or you also had a negative experience with that officer. And if we had every citizen that goes through any of these types of experiences with our officers doing that, maybe it would be more likely the departments would know who their loose cannons are. Because let me tell you one truth about police departments. They all have to carry insurance, and somebody in the chain of command there has to manage a budget. And when they have enough things go wrong, their insurances go way up. There are actually police departments that have had to close down because they can no longer afford to insure themselves. Now, they're, yes, they're not big departments. They're not like Los Angeles or Jacksonville, Florida or Dallas, Texas, right? We're not kind of that size, but it's actually happened to smaller jurisdictions. So it does matter. So people talk about the squeaky wheel getting the grease. If I ever have a negative, in fact, I have had one really negative experience with the police. And it wasn't really about me. It was about my son. And I obtained an audience with the police chief. And I told him he had taken a citizen who had always committed to do everything he could to work with local law enforcement and ensured that I would never be cooperative without counsel in any situation ever again. And that I advised my entire family to do the same because he had proven to me that his officers would lie. And let me tell you something. It went inside. I don't know what got done about it. I know that my statement was true. I will never work with law enforcement without counsel, period, under any circumstances whatsoever, ever again. Because I've been shown that I cannot trust the police. And you law enforcement officers that feel bad about that, well, when you lie to someone's effing face and you commit to them that you won't do something and then you immediately go do that, you've taught them that you're an effing liar. And I just have to assume that anytime I'm dealing with any of you, you might be effing lying to me. Therefore, I need legal counsel to advise me. Now, I'm not the asshole that says I want a lawyer when you're writing me a speeding ticket. You know, you're writing me a speeding ticket. Okay, where are you going? Down the road. You know, can I see your license and registration? Here you go. Why were you going so fast? I don't know. 
It happens. It happens to you, I'm sure, all the time, officer. You're driving, you're going a little faster than you thought you were. You write me a ticket, give me a warning, whatever, man. I, you know, and, and, and a relaxed attitude, not being a dick. So the last thing I want to say is, I started out with the fact that I'm glad that people are videoing the police and all. Agitating, aggravating, getting in people's faces, not smart. Not smart, because here's why. Like I said, you don't know what that guy was doing 30 minutes ago. There's a 10% chance that any individual you're talking to at any time, no matter what their profession is, a scumbag. And in this case, you could have had somebody really jacked up over something really dangerous that just happened to him, and he's back on duty, and you don't even know about it, okay? Where some guy just had a knife that was going to try to stab him, and he got lucky, and he still worked up over it. Plus, he's a scumbag. Plus, he has a taser. Plus, he has a gun. Plus, he has a club. The authority of the state and the badge, and you go get in his face, and you could end up really hurt or dead, And no matter you're right or you're wrong, when you're dead, it sucks. Trust me. All right? I haven't actually experienced it, but I can extrapolate. Did the experience of dying before you want to, dying young, dying over stupidity, dying over trying to make a point, sucks. And it sucks for your family. So, it's not kissing the ass of law enforcement to be respectful and decent. In fact, let me put it to you this way. What we should expect as citizens in any encounter with law enforcement is that they are respectful and decent with us. That's what we should expect, especially when you're talking about a, com a conversation, a, a traffic stop, something like that. Not you were pulling the, the window off a house with a crowbar and you got caught. I, I don't expect you to be treated with decency and respect, at least until you're in cuffs at that point. You're going to be grabbed, put to the ground and cuffed because you're trying to break into somebody's house. All right? But if you're having a conversation and you're being relatively cooperative, we should expect decency and respect, and honesty, okay? And since we can't expect honesty, because we know we can't, because they lie, and they're trained to lie, and you cops say you're not trained to lie, you're lying when you say you're not trained to lie, okay? So we can't expect honesty. So our best thing to do is anything that seems like it's unnecessary, they just don't need to know, because we can't give them what we expect for that. But we can expect decency and respect. So we should be the same way. Now, I'm not talking about respecting their badge, respecting their... I'm, I'm talking about respecting the person behind the uniform. And if you do that, a lot of these situations, even if the guy's off-kilter, if you do follow up and report his off-kilter, his abusive, his aggressive actions, will be far better reported and far more likely to actually have some consequence than if you respond to it by being a dick, too. And I recommend everybody get a dash cam. Everybody get a dash cam, and it's so that if you get in a wreck, whatever, you have proof. But when a guy pulls you over, you turn the dash cam at the window and go, I just want you to know everything's being recorded. And if a guy ever starts getting like that with you, you know, say, you know what, I, I don't like the way you're acting. Could you get your supervisor here? I'll cooperate with him. If he says no, you, I mean, you got to make a decision at some point that you just kind of go along. Because you're not going to resist successfully. And you're going to end up worse off for it. But that also straightens people up sometimes, too. You know, I, I don't I, I don't know what's wrong. I don't know why you're acting the way you're acting. I'm willing to comply with every legal request you make of me. But you're acting really, really upset. I would like to have your supervisor come. You know? If you're not in a situation where you're going to get yourself shot because he thinks you're trying to reach for a gun or something, dial 911. Dial 911. I mean, I, you dial 911, throw it on speaker, throw it on the dash of the car. I say, well, I have 911 on the line. I, I don't... I don't like the way this is going. Officer, what is your name? 
What is your badge number? Why was I pulled over? Something doesn't seem right about this to the dispatcher. I would like another officer here. I am fear for my safety. Because of the way I fear for my safety, I have nothing to say to this officer. I would like an opportunity to speak to counsel, and I would like another officer here. Think about shit like that before you do it, though. You better be in a situation where you think it's actually required. Again, I know I'm going to get some stupid shit like you're kissing the ass of the law enforcement or whatever here, you know, giving a boot licking or whatever kind of stupid ass shit that is. No, what I'm trying to do is give people common sense, logical advice to stay alive. And imagine when you have video of an officer being a dick while you're nothing but polite. While you're nothing but polite and totally within your rights. How much better is that as evidence than even if the, the, in the beginning you're doing that and as he becomes a dick you kind of meet his dickness right when you do that you lose credibility the, the more calm you are and when you are given a lawful order by an officer you comply with it i'm going to take you under arrest okay i'll submit to arrest we'll sort this out in a courtroom and hey guys when you're doing video stuff get equipment that uploads video immediately immediately That's that's probably the best thing we can do as a society. Uh, and then you know, well, I'm going to confiscate the camera. Oh, that's fine. It's 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 already on YouTube. It's probably being viewed by now. But you do what you need to do. Uh, no, I'm not giving you the passcode to it. Bye. Uh, anyway, let's uh, go on from there. Hi, Jack. This is Alan in Houston. I have a question regarding silver and the. Uh, Proper application of it as an investment, uh, if if it's a good idea. I was recently listening to your expert counsel episode when uh, John Pugliano was talking about bonds and and the wisdom or fallacy of those, uh, whether they're a wise idea. You guys started talking about silver coins and how that might be a better idea right now. So, kind of got the wheels turning in my head. And I started thinking about my uh, two-year-old daughter and having a daughter uh, that young. I There's a wedding looming on the horizon in 20 years or so. And uh, I was just wondering if silver might be a good vehicle for keeping that money safe against inflation uh, over those years uh, to begin Uh, putting some of that money into silver and who up a savings account or something like that. Um, and then I also had a question on exactly how silver works. I've never, never spent any money and bought any silver. And, uh, I would like to know why I'm seeing, you know, differences in, uh, pricing from different, uh, mints, different, uh, types of coin, different, uh, even in the same sizes, and if you can just help me get started on that process, I would greatly appreciate it, give any kind of insight that you might have. Um, thank you so much for your show. Uh, we, it, it's made a big impact on our lives, and we appreciate it. Thanks. 
Well, I'd recommend that maybe you listen to a whole show um, from the Survival Podcast archives on investing in silver, different ways, different options, what works, what doesn't, okay? Um, but I'm going to answer the question more as how it's asked in buying silver for young children as part of their future economic stability today. Um, as far as paying for weddings, I, I recommend you, if you don't pay for a wedding, you, you save money, cash, And let's back up a little bit with the advice on bonds. The advice that John Pugliano gave to a gentleman about bonds was that he should not sell his bonds until such time as he needed them because he had bonds that were almost 30 years old and they reached maturity and they were from a time when interest rates were four and a half, five and a half, six percent. And that's a great interest rate to be making on guaranteed money today. And once the maturity rate is reached, you can always cash the bond in, but yet the interest still accrues. So just hold on to it. So today we look at interest rates being below a point, and it doesn't make sense to buy that and be locked. have your money locked in. It stands to reason that we could have a sideways skid-based economy staying with uber-low interest rates for 20 years like they have had in Japan. Uh, it could happen. But it's also more than likely at some point we will see interest rates begin to rise and there may become an opportunity to invest in bonds like this again at substantial interest rates, four and a half, six percent, somewhere in there or higher. There were times during the 80s when you could get CDs, including very long-term CDs, at 8.5%. So if we have cash and those opportunities occur, or we have securities that we can readily exchange and those opportunities occur, we can then move those securities or that cash into those longer-term high-interest guaranteed money opportunities, which is one of the big reasons I like preserving cash or at least securities that can be invested that way that are fungible, which means easily convertible. Now, that brings us to silver. Remember I talk about inc you know, increasing your financial IQ. Silver is fungible, and that means that it has a property where it can be uh, mutually substituted. So an ounce of silver is an ounce of silver is an ounce of silver. And in essence, an ounce of silver is an ounce of silver, right? Just to make it blunt. And that means that You can readily exchange an ounce of silver for an ounce of silver. You can also readily exchange an, an ounce of silver for a certain amount of cash at any given time. So it's not only fungible, it's also liquid. That means you can get money for it. And in general, though, you need to understand how silver works. So the basic way that silver works is we have what's called a spot price. A lot of people look at the spot price and think, well, that's what I should be paying for silver. No, spot price is if you buy... A uh, half a ton of, of raw silver in no no coin form whatsoever. That's what it's trading at today. That's the raw metal price, refined to known purity. Yes, but it's not the spot price of a silver eagle or a, a generic silver round. And then within silver, there'll be different types of um, coinage or bars, etc., that have different premiums on them. So they're all going to have some premium over spot. But in American Silver Eagle, since it's also officially U.S. currency, since it's eligible uh, for certain tax benefits, etc., generally trades at a higher premium than an ounce of silver that's stamped with, I don't know, the TSP ant on it. Okay, So those are still fungible with each other, though. They're still basically at their core an ounce of silver. One just will sell for cash or be liquid at a slightly higher premium, both of which will below, be below spot. They they will are above spot, so you you will be able to 
to generally buy them above spot and generally sell them at near or even slightly below spot. There's a, a margin there. So this means silver, when you buy it physically, is at once a losing financial transaction. That's the honest truth. Because if you go buy a silver eagle and then walk out the door, turn right back around, walk into the shop and go, I'd like to sell this silver eagle, he'll be like, okay, well, how much can I get for it? And he'll say, a price that will be lower than what you just paid. Why? Because he has to make money, a very thin margin of money, and that's how buyers and dealers of silver make money. So when we buy silver, we're, we're intrinsically saying by taking the physical metal into our possession, we either intend on using it for barter within a barter economy, or we intend on holding it for some length of time so that we'll hold and appreciate in value. Okay, So we have that down. And over the long haul, silver and gold have done quite well. Um, very well, actually. They've also had broad peaks where there's been times where certain market forces have driven silver up above $50. And if you bought it then, it might be a long time before you see that came back. So you have to, when you're buying silver, watch for things like that. If you have an irrational peak in the metal price, then you don't buy at that particular time. We had that recent, during the economic crisis, where silver went way up above where it belonged. And we also had, during the 80s, during the Hunt Brothers attempt to corner the silver market, silver make that spike. Those are the two big spikes in silver's history. Through the rest of the time, it's been a pretty steady, slow upward movement where silver uh, does its battle with inflation and counterbalances inflation, telling us the truth about the loss of value in cash. Okay, So now it comes to, we're going to invest this in a two-year-old. Here's the way I look at that. I've tried really hard to look at what is the average price that people pay to buy a child a present. And the number I come up with is between $15 and $25, and that's friends coming to birthday parties. That's auntie and grandma and things like that. Parents, it seems, generally spend about $50 to $100 for a birthday present, okay, or more. They spend hundreds of dollars on average around Christmas if the fi family has the financial means to do that. For minor holidays, you know, you're still looking at grandma and aunt and uncle chipping in $10, $15, and And mom and dad, on average, chipping in $25, $35. Those are the numbers I can find by going to mom websites and stuff like that. So I want you to think about all the money that gets spent on kids as they're growing up from the time they're about one, two years old and you're buying presents really for mom and dad because it's cute when you put a certain bib on a baby, all the way up to the teen years. And with the exception of things that they use every day like a smartphone, how much of that shit gets thrown away, donated, or lost? How much of it has no value whatsoever a week after it was bought or a year after it was bought? How much plastic toy crap do we buy for kids that they don't really care about? And if you have a larger family, your kids end up with so much crap, you literally have to take a couple hefty bags full of trash Uh, toys to a shelter or Goodwill or something like that to get rid of it every couple years. And I've seen it with my extended family. Everybody that has kids, you go to their house, it's like, holy God, look at it. Because every single time there's an occasion or a birthday or a holiday, somebody's buying them something, right? Because they need another toy, like a hole in the head. What if half of those toys were just never bought and were put into something like silver? That's my point. For That's not for you and me. That's for your kids. What if you just said, you know what, instead of spending 50 bucks on the kid this time around, I'm going to buy them $25 worth of silver and somewhere in that range, 
And yeah, kids like to have toys, so we'll buy them a toy, but a lower price point toy, or we'll save up and we'll combine that and another, and you know, all you're going to get is silver this time. And every once in a while, instead of buying them some piece of crap just because it's a random day to buy them a piece of crap, you said, look what Dad has for you today. It's a new silver round. Let's look at it. Let's learn about it. What is this picture? What is it? How much is it worth? Let's look it up online together. Remember how they make this. It comes out of the ground. They have to refine it. It's special. It holds value over time. It grows in value over time, just like you do, honey. Let's put it in your special box. What do they have when they're 18 then? What do they have? What if by the time they're 18 they have 200 ounces of silver because you've gotten uncles and aunts and grandmas and grandpas in on this? They have just 200 ounces of silver. Well, even if silver went nowhere... If silver went absolutely nowhere, if it stayed the price that it is today, you'd have about $3,000 worth of silver. Now, you should ask yourself, instead of something like paying for a wedding, what that might do for that young adult. If you gave them $2,000 or $3,000 or $5,000, they might be really quick to go out and spend it. But if you've created this habit in them to always take some small portion of what they're saving, so you're saving 10% of your income, so you're putting away 100 bucks this month, so let's put 10% away, or $10, and we can't buy any silver with just $10, so we'll put that away, and we'll put it in its own little cup, and maybe we save $100 a month, so every six months we have 60 bucks, and we go out and buy two or three ounces of silver, depending on the price, and they do that for the rest of their life. What do they have in a wealth assurance program? For the rest of their life. What is the value of that silver going to be when they're 50 or 60 or 70? Now, you said you've never bought or used silver before, so you don't understand how it works. Here's one of the cool things about silver. Since it's fungible or easily exchanged for like components, and it's liquid, which means it's easily exchanged for currency, you can go to lots of places and sell silver. So a person in their 50s or 60s that decided they needed some money could easily go down to a pawn shop or a coin shop and sell just a couple hundred dollars worth of silver on any given day of the week. And if you're under certain amounts, it's not even reported. And I know you're supposed to report it, but it's not. Or they might be able to make a deal with somebody to pay for something in silver, and then that's between them and the fence post, if you get my drift. See, silver isn't just this amazing commodity with what we would call an inelastic demand. In other words, silver is used, every electronic device in your home has some silver in it, and once it's in an electronic device, it's gone forever, and there's only so much of it. So if the price of silver goes up five times what it is today, Apple still needs to use the same amount in an iPad, and they're going to pay for it anyway. That's an inelastic demand. That's just one of the things that makes silver so amazing. It has medical uses, etc. All of these things are such small amounts of it in any individual unit, they'll pay for it no matter if it's $60, $70, $100 an ounce. But that will still continue to pull demand on silver at the price being higher. We can only expect silver to go one direction over the long term, and that's up, because we know the plan for the money is for it to go down. If you look at a graph of the value of a dollar from 1913 till today, they're really good at devaluing the dollar, and they plan to do that by 2% to 4% every year if everything goes according to plan and they don't mess anything up for eternity or until they remonetize the system and come up with a new monetary system. So we know that silver will hold and increase value over time and always will remain something that we can exchange for cash or exchange for value. But the biggest thing that it gives us Something that nothing else can really touch is anonymity. Because even cash, they can and have and will change cash. 
They may even try to eliminate cash with blockchain-type technology mimicking what Bitcoin did, because that's always been government's goal, to get rid of cash. They don't like anonymous transactions. Well, what happens to the value of silver if there is no cash? And it becomes the go-to for barter and exchange privately. Wouldn't that be interesting? Not the shit hits the fan, just cash money pretty much vanishes and goes away. I'm not saying it's going to happen anytime soon, but it is the goal. It is the goal of government to eliminate cash. It has been for a long time. All these and more are reasons to save silver. But if everything just stays the way that it's been, I just believe that when it comes to our our children, if we take even a small portion of the money spent on them over you know their first 20 years of life, and move it over to silver, not only will they end up as a young adult with a significant store of value, they'll have an understanding of value that many of our young people today have no comprehension of. Many of our adults today have no comprehension of. And to the original caller says, you've never used silver, you don't understand silver, how would your life be different if your father did and had done this for you? I really recommend, guys, you invest in small amounts of silver over time for your kids, Tell them the story along the way. Show them the value that it has. Make it important to them. And when they're young adults, that alone will give them an up on society. It has nothing to do with really what the dollar value of that silver is. It'll be their mental understanding of stores of value, stores of wealth, and how to save for the future. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. It's Nate calling from Ontario, Canada. Uh, Got a, got a hypothetical question here for you about uh, your 10% scumbag theory in libertarians. Uh, if there's 10% of scumbags everywhere, that includes libertarians. But a true libertarian following non-aggression principle wouldn't harbor egress upon others. So uh, just uh, something I thought of uh, listening to an episode and uh, wondering what your take is on that. Uh, thanks for the show. I've been with you since the days of the Jetta, and you made my commute a hell of a lot better. So, your point is valid. If a person is a libertarian, and even if they have scumbag tendencies, if they adhere to what libertarianism would require of them, which is the non-aggression principle, they could be morally a scumbag, but physically they would be required to restrain themselves. Of course, the, uh, uh, a preacher who teaches every day that God commands that you remain faithful to your spouse and not have extramarital affairs if he followed what he was teaching and the creed that he claims to follow and guide his life would never have a affair. So have any preachers or pastors or ministers had affairs that you know of? Huh? Okay, so that may or may not be actual scumbagism, but it definitely means that we've strayed from our commitment, our creed, what we profess. We, we've we've reneged on that. Now you might also say we've reneged on the partner, and you, many instances may have, but we don't know any individual situation at home. Whenever there's a divorce, you know that both parties blame the other party, and usually both are wrong. Um, but sometimes one side really is the problem. It does happen, and sometimes that makes it more likely that one might seek comfort elsewhere. So you might not go all the way to scumbag over that. You might just go over to being weak due to situation. 
So, but we could all agree that when a priest uses the, the cloak of the church to molest a child, we've gone over to scumbag, and if that priest were to follow the teachings of the Catholic Church, then we, that would not happen. Okay? So, again, we see something with a much higher calling morally to restrain oneself failing. So the, you, you, the, the problem with the belief that just because someone's a libertarian, they will follow non-aggression, is you're following still religion, the religion of statism, which I believe is the most insidious religion, the most damaging religion hoisted upon humanity. The belief that a state is more qualified to live your life for you than you are yourself. To actually believe that leadership should come from somewhere else rather than within. And that's the, the, the biggest problem with statism. But you are correct when you say that a, a libertarian that actually was practicing libertarianism would have to refrain from aggression. But they don't. And I mean even officially. Because libertarians talk about non-aggression, yet they're still for a small government, a small state, which still would require some taxation to run it, and therefore still requires some form of coercion to take property that does not belong to you. Now, many libertarians get very close to anarchism and talk about how we could fill all those roles of government with voluntary fees. No one is actually coerced. And you're getting closer. And that's good. And stay on that journey. But this is why I think that the 10% number probably would be lower among libertarians, but somebody might be about to throw a monkey wrench in it with the next call. Seemingly unrelated, but you'll make, it'll make sense when you hear it. Unlike being a Democrat or a Republican or just being basically I think everybody sucks and I'm politically agnostic, not an anarchist, just I, I, don't, I, I don't trust anybody and what have you. All of those things you kind of fall into. People fall into being a Republican because their dad was or because their dad wasn't, right? One way or the other, like that has an influence on it. I want to be like my dad. I don't want to be like my dad. Or because they hear the marketing and this one sounds, you just kind of choose like A or B. I pick A, pick B. And after a while, you might go, I don't pick either, but you don't pick anything. Well, I think your ratio, scumbag ratio, is going to be pretty uniform across that to be whatever the aggregate average is. But a person who's actually made a decision to be an anarchist or a libertarian has had to find something and truly voluntarily commit to it. And that may make it a little lower than average, but priests voluntarily commit to the priesthood. But do they do so truly of their own free will? Or would you say that most priests, by being brought up in the... I mean, most people that become a Catholic priest are brought up in the Catholic Church and on some level are programmed to think this would be a good thing to do. Where most libertarians are not brought up by libertarian parents who say you should be a libertarian, son, they, they actually literally find it for themselves. And then they're choosing to, to go towards something that requires less scumbaggery, requires more honesty. And what, what held me back for a long time from anarchism is, well, I couldn't understand how it would work, and I'll admit that I still don't understand how all of it would work. We'd have to start trying it. okay? And we are trying it in little pieces and parts, building parallel systems now. And it does work, and it has worked in the past. And I'll, I'll put a link today for a series of articles called Anarchism, Never Been Tried? Question mark, that, that shows six examples of successful anarchies. If you don't believe it can work. So some of it is convoluted and hard. But what I actually understood it was about morality. 
And it was a philosophical understanding that we should be attempting to avoid coercion. We should be attempting to do all these things we say we can't do without coercion because people also used to say, well, who the hell is going to pick the cotton if we get rid of slavery? Yet I don't see a cotton shortage. Do you? So the minute that we had to find a solution, son of a bitch, we did. So you get into this place where I don't think you can expect that someone who says they're a libertarian and anarchist won't be a dirtbag because I've met plenty of people that I consider to be dirtbags that call themselves one or the other. Now, it is true that in every instance, neither one is actually doing what the title would convey. But they still think they are. In fact, I'm going to tell you guys that are anarchists, that are purest anarchists, that talk shit about every police officer, that talk shit about everybody that works for the government, that talk shit about every soldier. The number one reason that you can't grow the anarchist movement beyond the small, tiny drop that it is today. It's because you're assholes. It's because you're not scumbags. You're assholes. You talk shit to people that are 98% closer to you than average about how they're stupid bootlickers and other nonsense like that. You, you literally are the parents that if a baby finally pulls themselves up with a table and takes one step and falls down, you go, you stupid baby, you can't walk and shove the baby down. So you should never even try. You're an idiot, baby. You're a dumbass baby. God, you're so stupid, baby. You can't walk. Now, how does a parent actually get a child to walk that's made that step? You know, do it again. Come a little further. But that's not what you people do. So I think anarchists, libertarians, etc., there's plenty of us that are doing the best we can. There's scumbags in our ranks. But I think our bigger problem is there's assholes in our ranks. So then the big question is, if you're an internet troll, are you a scumbag? Or are you just an asshole? And with that in mind, let's listen to our next call. Hi, Jack. I'm Ben from Florida. I've got a Jack was right and then a question. On many occasions, you've said that about 10% of the population are scumbags. Well, I've got some proof for you. There's a study done in 2014 I just found. It's titled, Trolls Just Want to Have Fun. You can find the study if you do a search for Trolls Just Want to Have Fun paper. The study found that 5.6% of Internet users enjoy trolling. With the other questions, they found that not only do they enjoy trolling, but trollers exhibit strong traits of sadism, which is the joy of bringing pain to others. Now, this 5.6% is only those who frequent the Internet as a study was conducted via the Internet. does not count the other sadists out there that do not use the Internet regularly, which I'd argue is probably a larger group, as the typical sicko probably hasn't discovered trolling and is currently enjoying sadism in other ways in real life. So, to me, it sounds like your 10% estimate might even be too low. So, after discovering this, I started thinking of ways to prevent trolling, and I came up with an idea that I'd like your take on from a privacy standpoint. Currently, most websites have an option to mark a comment as spam. However, it only works on that one website. What if all websites could install a script that is a common database? The script would extract the IP address, the email address, the name, username, profile pic, and, of course, the comment from the person that posted it. If a comment is obviously trolling, other users could mark that comment as such. The information collected would then be passed to the software tracking this. It would aggregate all of the comments from every website that's using the script and mark users 
consistently trolling as trollers. Then if a high enough percentage of users mark this person as a troll, all of the comments would be removed from that website. And if the troll receives the same reputation on the network of websites, all of their comments from all websites would be removed. This would be a simple way to metaphorically kick their ass, which is what they'd get in real life if they did the same thing. Now, I know what you're thinking. Never in a million years would you put something like that on your website because it's harvesting data that should be private. So let's make it interesting. The data extracted would be encrypted before it's transferred away from the website to the server software. Not only in the transfer, it stays encrypted on the server with absolutely no key. The software would be self-encrypting, so not even the developer could access the database. It would allow everything to remain completely anonymous, and this would allow the entire Internet to self-police without getting government involved or leaking personal data. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on both of those two things. I just thought of the idea after I was thinking of it, and, uh, yeah, just kind of weird thing hit me. So, yeah, love your show. Thanks. Okay, so you see what I mean. Let's start off with the first part of the question. Does trolling make you a scumbag or just an asshole? Is it true that all trolls are sadists that actually delight in pain from other people, or are they just assholes? Because I think there's a definite difference between being an asshole and being a scumbag. And I think the biggest difference is being an asshole is a quite situational And most of the time, temporary situation. People are assholes because they're angry. I've been an asshole. Uh, I've actually been requested to become an asshole on command by my wife, where she was getting screwed over by uh, a, a mechanic shop that had done some work on her car that she'd given very specific instructions to. And they, they did not follow her instructions. And when she came in, they basically said, you're just going to pay for this. And I had brought her to the place, and she had done this on her own. So... She came to the car and said, Jack, I need you to come in here and be an asshole. And I was like, okay, I can do that. So I walk in, and I had dealt with these people before, and they know the type of person I am. And I, I'm not generally an asshole, but you don't jerk me around. And when I walk in, the guy looks pretty confident until he sees me, and you just see his head fall. And I have a conversation where I'm not really being an asshole, but I'm kind of being an asshole. And trust me, if it didn't work, I would have jacked up the asshole quite a bit. That was situational, and it was temporary. When it was over, I went back to my vehicle, and I was happy. And I was nice to everybody else, okay? So sometimes people troll because they're pissed off because they've been trolled. So I've seen this, and I know there are libertarian trolls. And I know there are anarchist trolls because I've joined quite a few different groups on Facebook to exchange information and discuss libertarianism and anarchism. Not to discuss how socialism sucks. We all know it sucks. That's why we're not socialists. And I watch people come into the group and go, I just got banned from another socialist group I was trolling. And I'm like, okay, I'm done with this group. I, this is not what I'm looking for. Right? So I know that we have trolls in large numbers in these communities, at least online. So does that make them sadists? Does that make them scumbags? Or does that just mean for one reason or another, along the way in their development, they're being an asshole? Because there's a difference between having a difference of opinion with somebody, presenting a different idea, going out on your own wall or your own group and posting a meme that challenges beliefs, and being a troll. Let me explain what a troll is. A troll is somebody that goes into a community, pretends to be part of the community, and then causes shit on purpose. That's their goal, to cause shit. 
So they say, well, I don't quite, and they just lead the conversation. They cause shit. And what they really want to do is they want to cause the people to fight with each other and stay just a little bit outside of it if they can. I can see that being a scumbag sadist that has no other outlet for their scumbag sadism. And I can also see that being a person who's just being an asshole on a temporary basis. So that's, that's my opinion of the troll theory and how it applies to the scumbag theory. Now, we've heard this scumbag theory of mine mentioned quite a few times today by myself and two other people. Now, maybe I've never fully explained it to you because you're a new listener. My basic theory is just that. There are about 10% of people in society that are scumbags that exude their scumbagism. That means that they are active scumbags. Now, they may have to be smart about their scumbaggery so they don't get their teeth knocked out, they don't end up in jail, you know, they don't end up thrown off a cliff or whatever else you might do to a scumbag when you figure out that they are a complete pile of human waste. There is also what I call the second 10%. So it's really a 20% number. There is another 10% that are what you would call the scum, the repest scumbag. And some of these may eke themselves out into doing things like internet trolling and all, but in general, most repressed scumbags would be a scumbag tomorrow if they could get away with it. But they so fear somebody finding out that they're a scumbag, and their scumbagism is at some percentage point, you know, below 100%, that the com combination of fear, the combination of maybe maturing out of their scumbagism, Uh, the combination of consequences of being a scumbag repress them so they do not exude their scumbagism. And they're the person that you might not ever think would be a scumbag, but they're the person that, you know, will smash a window and steal a TV from a store while there's a riot going on that would never steal during normal times because mob mentality kicks in and I can get away with it. Where the rest of us, no matter what's going on, We're not smashing a window and stealing a TV from the store under the guise of I'm protesting something because we're not scumbags. Got it? Okay, so that's the scumbag theory as a whole. So now on to the technical concept of how could we crush trolls. The idea has some validity, and there's been attempts by different Internet companies to create like a real ID is what you're talking about. So you would have this site where you go set up a profile and it verifies that I really am Jack Spierko. And then all the social networks, etc. could plug into it and I am actually who I say I am. And then if I turned out to be some kind of an asshole that was causing trouble everywhere, I marked an asshole and I could be eliminated. The, the original concept from, from it came out in the very early days, back when like, People really thought Dig was a great site, and every internet marketer was trying to figure out how to get their clients dug. To give you kind of a, a time reference here, we're talking early 2000s. And it was more along the lines so somebody couldn't come out and pretend to be me. And, 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 and let's say damage my reputation by pretending to be me. And what, what's happened is by actually having real accounts, uh, most you know, people are able to say, this is my official Twitter account, this is my official Facebook account, this is my Instagram, whatever. And when somebody creates a fake version, it's, it's pretty obvious that it's fake. But your idea would have some merit, but it would also be easily spoofed. The best way you could do it is to require a two-level authentication. So... John Jones goes to set up an account. John Jones is a new John. You know, there's more than one John Jones, just so we can figure this out. So it's John Jones. He has a picture. He, you know, even if it's a cartoon that doesn't really look at like him, a different avatar, or whatever. But he wants to have an account that's John Jones. 
So John Jones sets up an account. He sets up an email address. He has to verify the account at the email address. That's one step on authentication. We all would realize how quickly that could be spoofed because you can set up a new Yahoo account in, what, five seconds flat. So then you have a second-level authentication that authenticates John Jones really is at least a person. So John Jones has a cell phone, almost everybody. So you would require a cell phone number for this. The cell phone re requires that they send you a text, you, you get a code, you go back to the site. And there's a lot of sites that do this type of authentication right now. And it is a great security measure. And it sends you a code, OU812, right? Some of you know where that's from. Uh, if you're a child of the 80s and you don't, something was missing in your life. So you get OU812, you go back to the site, you click your email link, and it says apply second-party verification. You stick that in. Okay, now we know you're John Jones because John Jones got that text message, and John Jones got that authentication, and John Jones verified that that's who he is. And if somebody else tries to set up an account using that that uh, that phone number, then John Jones's original account has to be deleted uh, and that has to be confirmed by John Jones. So we prevent spoofing that way. So you go out and get a forwarding number and you forward text from that number to your phone. You can still make 800 accounts. And, you know, from what I know about security, I understand a lot of the things that these trolls do. And this is what you need to understand about trolls. These are sad, in most cases, adult, adolescent children. That's what they are. They're sad people. I, I, I know some trolls personally. Like, I know their real accounts, and then they set up troll accounts to, like, jack around with my regenerative ag uh, Facebook group because they don't like it because, well, it's successful. So you have to think about this. What kind of sad, pathetic, worthless human being sits around and goes through all this shit just so they can set up another account to go out and mess with somebody that's not bothering them? simply because they're effective at what they're doing, instead of going out and doing something for themselves that's effective. Sad, pathetic people. So I wonder if trolling is more a product of the millennial generation than it is of the scumbag theory. Because we have a lot of young people, and I don't mean to put down, a lot of you guys are great young people. I mean, I'm talking from teens all the way up to 30s here, right? A lot of you guys are out kicking ass and doing good stuff. But you know, if you're one of those people, there's a whole shitload of your generation sitting around crying, bitching, whining, and being pathetic. So let's say you are the type of college student that needs a safe zone because you heard something you didn't like. A recent one I heard was there were some people putting Trump graffiti on some college campuses and just writing, like, you know, a spray paint Trump 2016 on a wall. And that's vandalism and it's wrong. But the, the, the reaction to it was like some of these college students said they needed psychological counseling to deal with it because they, they saw that and it made them in fear. Okay, if you're that kind of sorry ass, pathetic, whiny ass little bitch and you are so wanting to make other people conform to what you want to do, and no one gives a shit. You are literally useless. No one gives a shit. You go out and try to make people see things your way, and they just don't care, then what are you going to do? Well, in this modern age, you can go online and pretend to be somebody else, and you can go out and cause trouble for other people that if you try to do it in real life, you just get your ass handed to you really, really fast. So... I think trolling is more a product of people being freaking worthless, useless wusses than it is a product of scumbaggery or sadism. 
Now, I'm sure there are some people that are fulfilling that sadist need, and they're screwed up in the head. But I think most Internet trolls could actually be decent people if they'd stand up, man up, and figure shit out, and actually come up with something meaningful to do. Because what you figure out over the years is you mature. If you figure out something meaningful in your life, stuff to actually do, to actually get done, and you actually start making progress, you don't have time to bitch about somebody else's progress or lack thereof. You're too busy seeing to your own. And I just wonder, I just wonder, though, what's wrong with the male mind, modern or in total? Because I'll bet you, I'll bet you if somebody tracked down enough of these trolls, 90% or more of trolls are males. And they're generally going to be males between the age of about 15 and 35. And I'll tell you the number one thing I chalk it up to. Not having a positive male role model in their life that when they did stupid shit, in the words of Red Foreman, put a foot in their ass, metaphorical or in reality. That is the number one problem I think that we have today, and that's that's why I think you see this manifestation of trolling. And I think it's why it's mostly young males. Because your daddy never put his foot in your ass. And if you're one of these people, maybe you should think about that. Maybe you should think about that. And you should ask yourself, if you're going to have kids, are you going to be there and do what your dad didn't do for you? I think this is a systemic problem. And I think the trolling is not that big of a problem. In a well-run, well-moderated forum or group, you just delete them, you banish them, you ban them. They go out and create new accounts. They go out and use fake IP. I deal with it all the time on the website. And you get really good at it, really fast at it. And sooner or later, they realize, well, it's not going to work. It's not going to work here. So there's no point. And the, the bad thing is occasionally you end up banning people or blocking people because you think they're trolls that really aren't. They just kind of seem like it because they're being a dick that day, and it's a casualty of war. So it's not the trolling that's the problem to me. It's the 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 reality that it demonstrates for us. That's what the problem, that, it's a symptom. It's like saying that the scratch with the pus coming out of it's the problem. Well, if you got gangrene down in your bones, that's the real problem, and that's the... That's the sad reality today that I think we're at. And I don't think it's just the millennial generation. I think it's my generation and the generation between us. I'm a Gen Xer. I think Gen X and Gen Y, we had some level of this. But I think there was still enough of the extended family held together to even those of us that didn't have the best male role models and fathers had some surrogate for it. But I think this generation today has less, and I think even in intact families. Fathers are, from my generation and younger, in many instances, you're a bunch of pussies. I'm sorry. You, you don't know how to teach a young boy to be a man, maybe because no one ever taught you how to do it, but try to do better. And I'm not talking about being a hard ass all the time. I'm talking about being around. I'm talking about not solving problems for your kids, but helping them and empowering them to solve them for themselves. You want to know, like some of these subjects today, is this a survival topic? Yeah, if you want our modern society to survive, this is a survival topic. Men leading their boys. Uncles stepping up when fathers don't. Grandfathers stepping up when fathers don't. Brothers stepping up when fathers don't. I know this happens. I had, it was a female too, that said to me at one of the training classes that I taught at, 
right toward the end of it, because I could tell it was hard for her to do, it was a big thank you. And it was because the words of this show had become the male role model she never had. I was amazingly grateful to hear that something like that could happen, but I was also very sad. Because that shouldn't be the case. Jack Spierko shouldn't be your male role model. There should be someone else. But if there isn't, then fine. I'll tell you the truth. If you're out jacking around with someone else's shit because you don't like what they're doing, what it actually means is you're not accomplishing the square root of F all. You're living a useless, hollow, worthless life, and you're freaking better than that. So go prove it. Because you can. If you're still fogging a mirror, you still have a chance to make a positive contribution to the world. And you're never making a positive contribution to the world when you're spending most of your time trying to tear down what someone else is doing. Let's take a final question of the day. Hi, Jack. It's John from Southern Indiana. I'm looking to purchase a diesel-powered vehicle for all the advantages that they offer. And I thought I heard you briefly mention something on a previous show about 2005 and older diesel trucks at the right price being a wise investment. So I was wondering why 2005 and older, and if you had a reason to prefer um, one brand over the other for those model years. Thanks for the show. It's definitely put my life on a better road. Take care. Okay. Um, don't quote me hard and fast on a 2005 number. I may have said that because that's what I own, and I know that Stephen Harris told me that's one of the last good years, and I'll explain why here in just a second. So... This whole change happened between about 2006 and 2012 before it was fully implemented across all, all diesel vehicles. But there's something called uh, DEF, or diesel exhaust fluid, that's basically, well, it's piss. It's urea uh, with some other things. And what it's designed to do is make sure that diesel fuel more completely combusts as though there's a problem. And you can bet the people that make this stuff had a big part of the lobbying that got Congress to pass the law because they have a guaranteed market for it now. So I'm explaining how this works. On new diesel trucks, and going back, I said definitely in like 2010, 2012, that range and forward, if you open your gas cap usually is where you'll see this, you'll see two holes. One hole will be obvious. That's where the fuel goes. And you see this other smaller hole for additive. And you got to dump some additive in there. Okay, fine. It's not really that expensive overall, and you don't need that much to a tank, so there's a pretty good reserve, so you don't have to use it like every time you fill up and what have you. But it's, it's an additive that you have to add. Many of the new vehicles, if your vehicle runs out of it, your truck will shut off. It will shut the F off. You're driving down the road and you have fuel. You're out of death. Your truck will shut off. It will not run. You are stranded. Your truck will not effing run because you don't have this piss to dump in your tank to make sure the fuel fully combusts as though that was ever really a problem with modern diesel engines in good repair. So... If you buy a 2005 or earlier, I absolutely guarantee you it does not have this feature. So I'm not stuck on the 05 number. What I'm stuck on is when you're looking at trucks, if you're looking for Dodge or Ford or whatever, uh, what you want to do is you want to look up what year they went to that and then find that year and go one year prior and back in your search. Because I don't want this. And it's not the expense. 
It's not the expense. Being required to dump something else into my vehicle that it absolutely does not need to run for it to run, that that vehicle could run just fine for the rest of its lifespan without that additive. But my vehicle will shut the F off because I don't have it. And it's not something that you just go down to the corner store that they sell diesel at and get. It's a little harder to find than that in a lot of instances. Now, I'm sure it's getting to be better about it, but I don't know because I refuse to buy a vehicle that requires it. Now, there may come a day when finding older model diesel trucks in good repair, and I need one, and, and, and it's not possible, but it's going to be a long-ass time. I'm a damn good diesel mechanic. And, and I'll rebuild an old motor before I'll buy one of these damn things. I feel that strongly about it because, again, my thought is, oh, great, because I forgot about this damn thing. I'm stranded somewhere. Well, you're supposed to be a prepper. I am. And there's two ways that you practice being a prepper. One is to make sure the things that you need you have in surplus and abundance and with you and you have access to them. The other is to reduce how much you need. That's actually the more important part. We don't create unneededly complex situations for ourselves. We create simplified situations for ourselves so that we can meet our needs with less if we're smart. So I'm adding something that's unnecessary at this time, and I'm also doing it just for the, the privilege of spending $70,000 on a truck today to buy a new, nicely equipped diesel full-size truck when you can go out and buy an 05, an 06, an 04 in good shape with 100,000 miles on it for $20,000 cash. And that truck's got 200,000 miles on it if it's got a mile, if it was well-maintained, and more. I mean, you can put on a diesel motor that's properly maintained, you can put a half a million miles on it. Easy. The truck will fall off of the motor before the motor runs out, unless you, you know, you're, if you're driving 1,000 miles a week or something, maybe. I, I don't know, you know. If you're putting 70,000 miles a year on, I guess you could wear out a motor if you don't maintain, you know. Even, even, even then, if you maintain it properly. Um, so that's why that, that, that's pretty simple to answer because of this, this urea. And if you look up diesel fuel additive DEF, DEF, uh, you can learn all about it. Look up diesel fuel additive urea. You'll, you'll find out that I didn't just make that up or pull it out of my ass. Uh, urea doesn't come out your ass by the way. Anyway, with that wrapped up, um, kind of like to, uh, Remind you guys here at the end, if you like the show and the work that I do, you can help support it by joining the Members Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And you get so many discounts that your membership will pay for, it for, for itself. You can just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more about that. And if you uh, are a military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, or first responder, uh, you can email me with uh, TSPC service discount in the subject line, and I'll get you an email back to you and uh, get you a discount on an already great price. you got to do that before, not after you join, guys. Next, a quick shout-out to one of our TSP Business Directory supporters. So you can go to tspbiz.com to learn more about that. Uh, the Wealth Studying Podcast by John Pugliano provides timely information on investing and market trends. John's an expert council member and a great friend of mine. Check out his podcast to learn his 10 wealth building principles. You can do that at the Wealth Studying Podcast, and you can find all types of folks out there running their own little businesses that want to do business with other members of the community. Again, on our website, and you can get a shortcut to it at tspbiz.com. And uh, with that, let's talk about our closing song and the general close today of the show. I, I, I talked 
when, when, when I had that discussion about the, the modern generation of young men and not having positive role models in their life, I, I didn't really have a, an idea that I was going to talk about it. So this song wasn't, this wasn't selected for that, but yet it, it seems to really apply. Um, I have a, a friend, I would call him now, named Cole Reisner. He's a musician. He's played two concerts uh, at my uh, house for uh, get-togethers and gatherings we've had for, for our, our workshops. We've paid him to come in, and he does a fantastic job. He agrees to play for two hours. He usually pays for four. He's just that kind of musician that works his ass off, and he's really, really good, as you'll hear in just a minute. And he's running a Kickstarter to fund a new album, and I think he needs like five grand, and he's up over 3000 bucks. Uh, I chipped in 500 bucks, and I'm not asking any of you guys to do that. I did that because it comes with a free acoustic concert, and I'm probably going to hire him to do that anyway. Uh, so he'll come out here and play an acoustic concert by himself, and I'll probably kick him some extra money and bring his fiddle player with him like we usually do anyway. Um, so there's, you know, it's kind of a no-brainer for me because I'm local in there. But he's got some things in there where if you're local, you can go to a concert that he's going to do that's going to launch this new album, and it's called uh, a, a New Man, uh, or A Better Man, I'm sorry. And uh, he, he's just a great guy. And I, I, I'd like you, as you listen to his music today, think about Coming by the site, clicking on a link, get over to his Kickstarter, and you know, consider you know buying an advanced copy of the album for fifteen, twenty bucks, whatever it is. Or if you're local, consider maybe chipping a hundred bucks. Come to the concert; there'll be some other TSP people there. I'd bet it'll be fun. And uh, you know, just consider helping out a musician that I think is uh, working hard and, and and good enough to be worth the investment. But I want to talk about the song that I'm going to play for you from him. It's called the Grandfather Song. And I originally found Cole because I was looking for someone to come play here. And, and you know, I had some people that you would just call, like, amateur hobbyists that want. And I was like, I want someone that's, like, really good. So I started researching people, and I found him online. And he has about five songs that he's published in his first little, like, mini album. And I listened to it, and this guy is good. This guy's fantastic. I mean, this guy's, like, Nashville quality fantastic. And then I heard this song. And I got to tell you, even though his grandfather and mine were different men, in many ways they were the same. My grandfather was an old coal miner instead of a roughneck. But you're talking about the same type of life, a tough, hard life that that generation lived. And I think somewhere along the line we lost an appreciation for valuing men that stood through such hard things and we were taught that you didn't want to be like your father or your grandfather you you wanted to have a better easier life we want you to go to college and and on and on and i think there's some really great things about that i'm glad that my life isn't as hard as my grandfather's who lived you know the last 40 years of his life with lumps of coal in his arm and black lung i i really am glad that that's not me but I'm also glad that I got to see that, and I didn't forget it, and I didn't let my son forget it, and I won't let my, grand, my grandson forget it. That That's the type of, of cloth that we're cut from. That's where we come from, folks. That's what this country is. That's how we got to be what we are. Not by being a bunch of whiny asses, but by being people that would stand through whatever the hell it was to do the best we could. For our family, and even if we fell short, we damn sure left it all on the field. We damn sure never gave up, and we were like, if I ain't dead yet, it doesn't matter that it ain't good enough, because I'm not quitting. I'm going to go keep doing it until it is enough. 
And I, I really feel a, a deep sorrow in my heart for this generation of men and women, these young men and women, that you were sheltered from that. You were protected from that. When you weren't sheltered and you weren't protected, you were lied to. Mostly by people that meant the best for you, but they didn't know what the hell they were doing. We, we It's like the telephone game where somebody says, you know, uh, you know, a blue radiator, purple car. And by the time it comes back around the other side, it's like purple monkey dishwasher, right? It, 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 the, the message of do more, go further, have a better life changed from generation to generation to generation. And it went from keep this ethic, keep this core, work your ass off, protect your name, it's all you have. Stand up, be a man, stand up, be a woman, take care of your family, and but then take all of that and use it to advance beyond what we could do. We've given you this much, you have a responsibility to go a little bit further and teach your children to go a little bit further and to teach your children to go a little bit further. And by the time we got four generations out to these kids coming up today is you don't want to be like that. That's not the message. The message is this is exactly what you want to be like. You bring this attitude, this ethic, this morality, this willingness to sacrifice with you, and then you kick ass in this world where it's so much easier. Not complain that it's too hard when you have it easier than any generation that's ever existed. And I know some of you are very angry with me right now. You young folks that say, it's easy for you to say, you've already built your life. There's more opportunity for you than there ever was for me. There's challenges that are different. But they're not insurmountable. They're not insurmountable. Remember, I didn't build this. I didn't build this show until I had achieved the pinnacle of success in corporate America and decided I didn't want it. I picked up a $20 recorder and a $15 headset. And I built a business that is a six-figure business. And I won't apologize for it because I built it. Yes, I built that. And you guys built it with me. But I couldn't have... I don't care what you say. When I was 20 years old, I couldn't have built something like this. The technology didn't exist. The opportunity wasn't there. If you wanted a career in broadcasting, you had to go to school and get a degree in journalism and then beg to get a job at a radio station. So there are entire industries that have no barrier to entry other than your knowledge and your determination, your willingness, and yes, maybe a financial investment that didn't even exist 15 years ago that are here today. Let me ask you a question. What do you think my grandfather, who spent decades in the mines, who was a sailor in World War II, who was an immigrant from the Ukraine, who was willing to work that hard to feed three boys that died an old alcoholic that smoked two packs of camels a day. But he did whatever he had to do to provide. What do you think that man would do if he was 25 years old and brought forward in time to right now and shown the opportunity he has? Yes, you do want to be like the coal miner. Yes, you do want to be like the roughneck. Yes, you do want to be like the farmer. Yes, you do want to be like the construction worker. Yes, you want to be like the carpenter. 
for those who think I had it easy because I became successful in corporate America, I started out packing boxes in a warehouse when I was 22 years old for $6 an hour. And my first good job in telecommunications was basically construction work. If I hadn't been willing to pack boxes, to dig ditches, to run a jackhammer, to learn how to run a backhoe, if I hadn't been willing to do those things, I wouldn't have anything I have today. But I wanted more. But I also wanted to be like the men that came before me. I'm sorry. I apologize to you guys that are, you know, 20 years younger than me, 15 years younger than me, that nobody ever told you this. I'm really sorry. I wish somebody had. I wish for all of us somebody had. But I'm telling you now. And I'm telling you it's the truth. And you're about to hear a song of somebody, yes, flawed and a lot of pain. But you do want to be like. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I will shine my shoes this morning Cause I'm going to a funeral They will later rest my grandfather Cause it's time for him to go home My granddaddy was a rough man He did it cause he had a kid on the way He was never too much into religion But it worked like he owed it to God He smoked since He was a little kid It was the only way he could kill the pain Then he woke one morning and said I ain't doing this no more And it was gone like a sweet Texas rain I will shine my shoes this morning Cause I'm going to a funeral They will later rest my grandfather Cause it's time for him to go home Stay broken anymore 
Cause it's time for him to go home. 